You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Psalms. Here's Nate. We want it all so fast. We're a culture that dreams of lottery wins and overnight successes and magical romances where everything just clicks without any work or any labor whatsoever. We are infatuated with the idea of windfalls of success. It seems that what we long for is an instantaneous arrival at our desired destination. But as we see in God's word, an instantaneous arrival at our desired destination is so often a myth that mankind pursues. There is a life that is a walk with God, a journey, a climb, where steps are involved and decisions are made. And this life is the better life. It it might be slow, and it might be a process, and it might take resolve and commitment, but it is good. It is so very good. And this life seems to be beautifully described in Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. These psalms are commonly called the Songs of Ascents, because these 15 songs were apparently mostly sung by Israel during the three times a year that they climbed the mountain to Jerusalem for their festal worship of God. And I think that in these 15 songs, we will confront this kind of life, a process life, a slow progression towards glory life, a resolute life, but in every way, a better kind of life. Now, to paint the picture in your mind, it seems appropriate to give a little bit of uh, preamble to the first psalm, Psalm 120, in dealing with first the psalms collectively and their setting in which they were originally used. As I mentioned already, God had asked the people of Israel to come to the tabernacle, which eventually became the temple, which was housed in Jerusalem three times uh, every year. Uh, The three feasts, and they would add various feasts and celebrations uh, in the latter years of their existence, but the three feasts that God asked them to attend uh, were, number one, the Feast of Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this would happen at some time between March and April on our calendar year. And it was a feast that commemorated the blood and uh, the exodus from Egypt. And then they also would celebrate, secondly, in the May to June time frame, the Feast of First Fruits, also known by us as the Feast of Pentecost or Weeks or Harvest or even Oaths. And this Feast of First Fruits commemorated God's provision upon them in the land of Canaan. And then finally, in September or October, uh, they would celebrate the Feast of Booths or We might know that this feast also is the Feast of In-Gathering or the Feast of 
tabernacles. And here the wilderness wanderings were commemorated. And all of these feasts seem to provide for the people of Israel an opportunity to refocus on God, to revive their covenant uh, with the Lord. And I want to tell you three things that the people in Israel would gain from these pilgrimages, from these climbs to Jerusalem. Number one, they were pursuing God at the center of their lives. By, by going up to these feasts, they were putting God at the center of their lives. Uh, actually, God said in Exodus 34, verse 24, which comes a verse after God asked them to go to the te temple three times each year, God told them that when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in a year, I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land. There was a worry, of course, about what would happen if they did put God at the center of their lives. If we give God these feasts, if we aren't working during that time, if we are traveling to Jerusalem, if we are keeping the Sabbaths, if we really do this, then won't we fall behind? Uh, the people around us? And won't we be defeated by the nations around us? After all, if our men are leaving their homes multiple times each year, uh, won't that be noticed eventually? And won't we strategically be giving up our military might? And so it was a real decision that they were making to put God at the center of their lives. And God, of course, was promising to them that if they did, he would take care of them. They would find his blessings upon their lives. It's like the young girl that I met recently who secured a great part in a, a great role in a local production. And uh, for years now, she has made the decision not to give herself to theater in an overwhelming kind of way, but to, you know, just appropriately. I, I have to live a life of balance, she would say. And yet there is God blessing and taking care of her life. And so often people think that we must strive. We must always, you know, play the sports on Sundays and all of that in order to get ahead. But here he's telling them, look, if, if you put me at the center of your life, I will take care of you. Number two, they were to also, in this pilgrimage, they were not only putting God at the center of their lives, but they were battling for holiness. First Peter 2.11, Peter exhorts us, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Part of sojourning, part of being an exile, is to abstain from the passions of of the flesh. Uh, these bodies have sinful appetites and desires. And when those sinful appetites and desires come, a pilgrim says, I am fighting for, I am battling for holiness. And then finally, putting God at the center, battling for holiness. But finally, number three, uh, the pilgrim opportunity would cause them to adopt the unconventional life of faith. It says in Hebrews 11, verse 13 to 16, that these all died in faith, 
not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Part of an exile life, part of being a stranger on the earth, part of living a life of pilgrimage is that, you know, these journeys up to Jerusalem, they were emblematic of the entire life of a true disciple. You know, you're continually, you know, realizing I am in the world, yet I am not of the world. And in Hebrews 11, where we have a great record of many people in the Old Testament who lived a life of faith, what we learn is that they were able to live that way because they were strangers and they were exiles on the earth. And so to collect all of those concepts together, you see that the pilgrimage of ancient Israel would put God at the center, would enable them to continue to battle for holiness in their lives, and would enable them to adopt the unconventional life of faith. And so these Psalms that we're about to read and study, they will affirm you in your pursuit of God and your pursuit of his holiness and your pursuit of the better life of faith. Now let's read the first Psalm together. It's seven verses long. A song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And one of the first things to notice about this first song is that it is not a communal song, but it is an individual one. Twelve times words like I or my or me are sung by the pilgrim. And this is helpful because the rest of the songs really are communal in nature. And, and what, what this helps us understand is that what you had eventually there in the temple, as Israelites from all over Israel, Hebrews from all over the world would gather together there in the temple to prioritize God and to, to, to worship him in their feasts. What, what you had there is you had many individual Hebrews making a decision. Their worship was corporate and national, but at the end of the day, it was very personal. And this is helpful to us because this first psalm seems to point us to the reality that immersed in an atmosphere of ungodliness, we must make a personal decision to embark on pilgrimage, to live in exile, to live this climb that is described for us. And so what I think we have here in this psalm are four prerequisites which aid your decision to climb. In other words, you won't live the life of pilgrimage. You won't live the life of exile unless you choose to do so. And it seems that you will not choose to do so unless some of these attitudes found in Psalm 120 are found in your life and in your heart. So let's consider these four prerequisites through this psalm. First of all, in verse 1 and 2, he says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. 
Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. It's interesting to notice that the pilgrim begins with this distress. You know, in my distress, he says, I called to the Lord. Now, this distress was caused by lying lips. This distress was caused, verse 2, by a deceitful tongue. Apparently, there had been something going on in this man's life where he just saw these lying lips and deceitful tongue, and it broke his heart. You know, it says in James chapter 3 that the tongue is like a small fire that sets a great forest ablaze. You know, just a few little words can, you know, cause such great problems. And apparently, some kind of words, whether directly about him or uh, from the lips of others who were supposed to be godly and who weren't, or from the world around him, there were words that had discouraged the heart of the psalmist. And like poison oak oil that gets everywhere and produces a major irritation, these words had disrupted this man and caused distress in his heart. And it's important to see that the distress caused him to pray. In my distress, he says, I called to the Lord. But what we must notice in the context of these Psalms is that it wasn't just that his distress caused prayer, but his distress caused more than prayer. It caused pilgrimage. And so prerequisite number one seems to be a measure of distress. You know, as you look around at the world, there should be a a little bit of a sense of distress inside of your heart. You know, a believer must have the joy of the Lord in their lives. But at the same time, Jesus talked about the blessing. Blessed are those who mourn. And, you know, as we look around at the world, you see the brokenness that's found in so many families. You know, where children are having to grow up with, uh, in less than ideal circumstances. Growing up in poverty or growing up with parents who hate each other or who have been unfaithful uh, to one another. Or living in families where they're experiencing abuse of some sort or another. Living in families where the father is an absentee father or maybe even present but still absent. There, you know, as we look at our culture and world, we see people living so far from from community, totally disconnected from other people. An indebtedness financially uh, that is, you know, just so over the top that it's just binding an overexposure to sexual content, an overconsumption of world news, constant scheduling pressures, male versus female and female versus male, white versus black and black versus white. There seems to be just this distress, this brokenness in the world. And the pilgrim comes to a place of allowing that distress to enter in uh, to their lives. Uh, To come to a place of saying, enough is enough. I'm done doing it that way. I'm out. If you don't have this distress, you will not depart from this world system. If you don't have this distress, you, you won't be willing to exit. You will live inside a burning building while the fire alarm sounds. 
You must come to a place of emptiness, a place of distress in your life and heart. Eugene Peterson said it this way in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He said, as long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility, we are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she, acquires an appetite for the world of grace. And indeed, it seems that we will not take the yoke of Christ upon us. We will not take the burden of Christ upon us until we say, yes, we labor and we are heavy laden and we are looking for another life. We are looking for another way of doing things, another way to exist. You see, the reality is that pilgrimage is not an easy life. But in comparison to the alternative, it is an easy life. It is the easy yoke of Christ. But you will not adopt it unless you long for a better way. You know, you might live in a wealthy community or a beautiful community. The sun might be shining. But there must be a thing within your heart that says, I'm longing for something more. I'm longing for something better. There is deception, deceit all around me. And in my distress, I will cry to the Lord. In my distress, I will embark on pilgrimage. Now, in verse 3 and 4, he continues out the thought about the deceitful tongue. And actually, he turns his attention and actually talks to the deceitful tongue. He says, what shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Now, this is another important movement to the song. This is crucial to getting the man out the door because many people will be in distress over what they see in the world, but they'll still continue to live in it and of it. You've got to get out of that system. You've got to leave the world. You've got to adopt a pilgrim exile kind of life. And this next movement is very important to that end. The singer, the individual, he begins to turn to the deceitful tongue. And he asks a couple of questions. What shall be given to you? What more shall be done to you? In other words, the question is, where will this flow of life lead you? Where will the flow of this age leave you where people give themselves to deception and a false tongue, false lips? Where will this age lead you? And this question is vital to the pilgrim life. Because if you don't answer it correctly, you will not embark on that pilgrimage. But he says that here's where the deceitful tongue will go. A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. What this means for us, and what he's saying is, that the tongue, the deceitful tongue, will actually be turned right around against the deceiver, and will be sharp arrows aimed right back at them. And the words that they speak, that are like a fire, will be turned into hot coals, the kind of coals that are produced from the broom tree, which apparently some of the hottest coals would come from the burning of the broom tree. 
And so what he's saying is that the deceitful tongue, the question, where will the flow of this age lead you? The answer seems to be, it will all come crashing down upon you. The deceitful tongue and the lying lips would be turned to sharp arrows and to glowing coals. Now, this is interesting because elsewhere, the tongue is seen as a weapon and the tongue is seen as a fire that are harming other people. But here, what he's saying is that God turns these harmful elements that people are using to hurt others. God will turn it back upon them. It says in Proverbs 19, verse 5, that a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. And what this speaks of is the discipline, the judgment of God. The people ultimately will not get away with living in this way. Now, what this does for the psalmist is to say something very simple, that God's inevitable judgment of lying lips is a microcosm. And it's an, a microcosm that says that this brand of life does not work. And so I've got to live the pilgrim life. This brand of life doesn't work out eventually and eternally, but experientially right now, this kind of life doesn't work. And so the second prerequisite, it seems, is that a person needs foresight. They need to see through the lie. They need to know that this life does not pay. You know, like Paul said in Romans 6, verse 21, he asked, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. You know, if you really think about the way of the world, the world system, it is a life that just does not work. And a prerequisite for pilgrimage seems to be to understand that, to know that this life is not effective, that this life will not work. Now, prerequisite number three is found in verse five and six. He says, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. Now, uh, Meshech and Kedar are unrelated to each other, but in the mind of the psalmist, they were both put into the same group. Uh, they are both basically unsuitable and unfriendly to the people of God. Meshech was the son of Japheth, the grandson of Noah, and he established a people group far north of Israel, often associated with biblical places like Tubal and, and Magog. And Kedar was a son of Ishmael, who established a nomadic tribe. Uh, that's why it speaks of the tents of Kedar. They, they were sojourners. They were tribesmen. And what the psalmist seems to be saying is that, look, here I am, I'm living amongst people that I just don't belong with. Now, this is partly him making a statement about the world that he lives in, but you have to remember, this is a Hebrew singing this song. Uh, you have to assume that there were probably some in his hometown, in his home village, who said that they loved God, who said that they belonged to God, who knew some Bible verses and scriptures, but who were unwilling to go to the temple for that pilgrimage. And 
So what he's saying here is not that he literally lives in Meshach or that he literally lives among the tents of Kedar, but that these people that are around him, that's what they are like. They are more connected, more aligned with Meshach and Kedar than they are aligned with the attitudes and the heartbeat of God himself. And what this psalmist seems to be saying is that I am incompatible uh, to this. And so he's saying, woe to me, I'm sojourning. I'm dwelling too long in this place among those who hate peace. I have my dwelling uh, here. And it seems to me that another prerequisite is that you must have a feeling of incompatibility. You must have a feeling that you don't belong. That You must have a feeling that this is an unequal yoke. And many biblical characters, of course, felt that incompatibility. Noah walked with God during a time when every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. But yet in that time and space, he was walking with God. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 2, he said, Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place that I might leave my people and go away from them. They are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. Micah, he said in Micah 7, verse 2, The godly has perished from the earth. And there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. And to the church in Pergamum, Jesus said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. Noah, Jeremiah, Micah, Pergamum, all of these people, all of these citizens amongst God's kingdom felt that sense that we are incompatible to the world around us. And there's something different about us. And we just don't connect in that normal kind of way. You know, it says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 to chapter 3, verse 4, that there are three types of people. There are those who are spiritual in Christ. They have the mind of Christ, it says there. They discern the things of the Spirit of God. Then you have the natural, the unconverted, the the unborn again. They do not accept the things of the Spirit, it says there. They think that they are foolish. And then you have the fleshly and the carnal. They are perpetual infants in Christ. They struggle with jealousy and strife and the picking of sides. And so often the spiritual person feels a sense of incompatibility, awkwardness, Uh, in these other two realms, especially amongst the fleshly and the carnal. These are the types of people that Hebrews 11 verse 38 say, of whom the world was not worthy. Do you have that sense of incompatibility? Do you have that sense that you do not belong? Now the final prerequisite is simply that you are a peacemaker. Notice in verse 7, he says, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. You know, Jesus, he sent us out as a sheep, as sheep in the midst of wolves. And here the singer feels that. You know, I'm for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And what the pilgrim has to be reminded of is that he or she is actually for peace. Because, you know, you can almost be made to feel as if you are the one 
because of the preaching of the gospel who have taken up war words. Well, the world around you, talking about coexisting and, you know, tolerance, it's easy to feel as if it's the world that has peace words. But that's not true. The believer has true words of peace. We have a harp in our hand like David, but the world at times has a a spear in their hands like Saul. And what I mean by this is that we, of course, are desiring true peace, gospel peace. We want to see people reconciled to God himself. That creates a peace with God, but also a peace within. And so we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. You have to keep your head on here to understand that you want true peace in this world. You want a true multiculturalism. You want a true forgiveness. You want true mental health. You want a true ending of hostility. And it might seem at times that it's twisted around on you as if to say that you are for peace or that you are for war. But the reality is you are for peace. But when you speak, they are for war. I think this fourth prerequisite is to understand that you are for the peace life. You want mankind to be reconciled to God. So the community, the community is going to climb. The community is going to pilgrimage. But will you join? Will you make the climb? Will you see yourself uh, in distress? Will you have foresight about the end result of living the non-exilic life? And will you understand that you are incompatible, that you don't belong here? And will you understand what makes for true peace? God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.